1958, scientists at Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii took their first measure of atmospheric carbon concentrations. They stood at 315 parts per million. Ice core samples show that even this was a record. In 800,000 years, up to the 20th century, concentrations had never passed 300 parts per million. The scientists kept taking samples in the Hawaiian mountain air every year. In 2013, they hit a threshold. 400 parts per million, or a third higher than ever before. Now in December 2022, with 418 parts per million on our collective carbon clock, and two to three parts per million being added every year, it's hard to ignore a sense of urgency. As carbon concentrations rise, so does the cost of damage caused. A 2015 report by Mott MacDonald and Anglia Ruskin University found global insured losses linked to climate change had risen from $40 billion a year in 1980 to about $160 billion then. And due to rapid global development, they predicted the value of the world's asset base would rise from $20 trillion to $80 trillion over the following 20 years to 2035. But aside from the financial impact, there's a moral imperative to act as the world's poorest people with the least responsibility for climate change will suffer some of the greatest impacts. Back in 2013, when the 400 mark was passed, the Paris Agreement was still three years away. However, the world was already beginning to turn more seriously to face the climate emergency. In that year, the UK government published an important document, the Infrastructure Carbon Review, lead authored by Mott MacDonald. At the same time, the first Carbon Crunch Summit was held, and since then, it's been an annual event for the infrastructure sector to come together and discuss developments and best practice in decarbonisation. In the decade since the first meeting, a lot has changed for the better. Net zero pledges have proliferated, climate finance has been provisioned, and we have a route map to a low carbon world. But there's little doubt our collective situation has worsened in those years. The IPC's report now make increasingly grim reading, and the future looks bleak for island nations and coastal regions. This year, the 10th Carbon Crunch Summit was held, with one major difference in its approach, a difference that reflects that steadily ticking carbon clock. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. This week we have partnered with Mott MacDonald for a special two-part episode looking at the reaction of UK engineering and infrastructure to climate change. For the first time, the Carbon Crunch Summit has added a new strand. It retains focus on carbon reduction, but shines a new spotlight on climate resilience. We'll be looking at both of these over two episodes of Engineering Matters. The world is on course to exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. Without urgent action, it will eventually peak at 2.6 or 2.7 degrees Celsius of warming. Whatever success we have in limited carbon emissions, we must also now plan how to protect ourselves and our infrastructure against these baked-in rises in global temperatures. This first episode will focus on carbon reduction and some of the current tools and initiatives that were discussed in the first half of this year's Carbon Crunch. 
The second episode, which we've also linked to in the show notes, will look at the increasingly urgent resilience angle. And with the UK's first 40 degrees Celsius day fresh in our minds and the record-breaking autumn storms experienced this year, this has come not a moment too soon. But since this is a 10th anniversary, let's take a look at what's been achieved in the last decade as the carbon clock ticked away. So to begin with, let's step back to 2013 and 400 parts per million. The first milestone was the launch of the Infrastructure Carbon Review, aligning with the inaugural carbon crunch. Lead author Mark Enzer said that for the first time it identified a link between reductions in carbon and reductions in cost, and set out 10 recommendations to bring both carbon and cost down simultaneously at any point in the asset lifecycle. The following year, National Grid made the use of a Carbon Interface Toolkit, CIT, compulsory on all its projects. Qualification to tender for National Grid contracts now requires measurement of carbon using the toolkit. In 2015, as the average annual carbon levels passed 400 parts per million for the first time, an historic agreement was made in Paris to enact measures to keep warming to at most 2 degrees and to try to limit it to 1.5 degrees. We can look into the eyes of our children, our grandchildren, and we can finally say, tell them that we have joined hands to bequeath a more habitable world to them and to future generations. It is an agreement of conviction. It is an agreement of solidarity. In the build-up to that announcement by Ban Ki-moon, then Secretary-General of the United Nations, the third carbon crunch marked the release of the Carbon Portal, the first carbon calculator to directly measure the capital and operational carbon footprint of BIM-designed assets. In 2016, the British Standards Institute published PAS 2080, a precursor to the eventual release of an international standard for managing infrastructure carbon. The BSI described it as much-needed guidance to help all asset owners make the most of carbon management and a complete rethink of business as usual. A PAS is a publicly available specification, a document much like a standard, but which is released to address a pressing need while inviting industry input and revision. PAS 2080 will return later in this episode. In 2017, it was announced that the US would become the first country to pull out of the climate agreement, although owing to delays and a change in administration, it eventually only left for two months at the end of 2020. In the UK, the country's second carbon budget, which ran from 2013 to 2017, was met, with emissions down 43% versus 1990. The government also published its clean growth strategy, setting out policies and proposals to deliver increased economic growth and decreased emissions. Plans included greenhouse gas removal technologies, improving the energy efficiency of homes, and prohibiting the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles by 2040. In 2018, the UK's third carbon budget, 2018 to 22, started with a target of reducing emissions to 37% of 1990 levels. 
In Poland, a tense COP24 took place as countries wrestled with competing climate priorities and attempted to create a rule book for implementing the Paris Agreement. There were some financing wins and an agreement was reached, but observers complained about a lack of urgency. And carbon concentrations hit 407 parts per million. In 2019, the UK government legally committed to cut national greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050, becoming the first major economy in the world to make such a pledge. A number of companies in the infrastructure sector also formed the UK Net Zero Infrastructure Industry Coalition, aimed at achieving that target. In 2020, the global economy shuddered as the coronavirus pandemic swept around the world. Much financial firepower was diverted to supporting communities amidst the lockdown of entire populations. Carbon emissions fell sharply due to the economic shutdown, but rebounded within the year. In 2021, COP26 was held in Glasgow, a year late due to COVID, with the aim of keeping 1.5 degrees alive. Existing arguments around financing and transparency intensified as wealthy nations missed a target of $100 billion in annual climate finance. But there were major wins on deforestation, methane and net zero targets. However, a last-minute intervention by India and China saw language around coal reductions softened, leading to an apology by an emotional Alok Sharma, the UK's COP president. I apologise for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I am deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. A crisis-weary world tried to leave Covid behind and focus once again on the greatest challenge of a generation, climate change. The coming year would not be gentle to those hopes, as governments, industries and communities were forced to confront yet more challenges. Some foreseen and some completely unexpected, as Ukraine became the strategic focus for many in the world. The 10th Carbon Crunch brought climate and infrastructure experts together in person for the first time in two years, due to that pandemic hiatus, and the stakes were as high as they've ever been. Today, atmospheric carbon stands at 418 parts per million. Collaboration is more important than ever. We're in the midst of an energy crisis it's testing our infrastructure, our, our economy, our society. The spiralling cost of energy prices is making some people incredibly fearful for what is going to happen this, this winter. I think it brings into stark relief the reminder that we, uh, our reliance on fossil fuels makes us very vulnerable and we must continue our journey and accelerate our journey to decarbonisation. We're all facing um, climate, uh, the climate threats. They're very real, they're very immediate, they're very substantial. 
recent events, the heat wave across the UK and Europe, the floods in Pakistan and the recent hurricanes in Florida are just a few events that really bring it home to us. Kathy Travers became the group managing director of Mott McDonald at the start of 2022 after spending most of her career with the company. She's a structural engineer and a project manager with years of experience coordinating multidisciplinary teams on complex projects. And that's a useful background to have as she opened the 2022 Carbon Crunch. All of us here and the organisations that we represent are dealing with our challenges in decarbonisation and we're dealing with the physical impacts of climate change. But we represent an interconnected system. And, that, and because of that interconnectedness, we either are successful together or we fail together. Infrastructure in the UK is responsible for more than half of the nation's total carbon emissions, and PAS 2080 is a critical document for the industry. That was the one released in 2016 and provides guidance for managing carbon in infrastructure. It is something that is at the heart of an industry trying to build back better. But at the heart of each individual working in the sector is often a moment in their past when the climate emergency first truly struck them. You know how you have some memories that are really burned in there and you can really remember it? I remember my geography teacher, I won't tell you how long ago that was, but it was GCSE, I will say that. I remember my GCSE geography teacher telling me that atmospheric CO2 was at 370-something parts per million. And if ever we got to 400, we were in real, real trouble. This is Simon Dawes, Head of Sustainable Business Strategy at the Environment Agency. He was responsible for developing a net zero roadmap for the organisation over the last few years. So how were we going to get to our net zero goal? And writing the roadmap was fairly straightforward. It took me about four days sitting in my office at home. The really hard part was how to get it fully integrated into the business and owned. So each of the emissions strands owned by different directors in the business and each of the actions that sit under that were fully owned by them. And that's and the delivery against those actions is built into the governance uh, of our organisation. It's really essential that this runs with the grain of the organisation and not against the grain or stands outside of it. An important part of this was building carbon assessment into the Environment Agency's appraisal process for its schemes, making carbon assessment a key part of deciding what gets built. Then they took an end goal budget approach to carbon reduction. They looked at their target date for net zero and calculated what the annual carbon reduction needed to be. So our carbon, our carbon target now reflects the shape of the work that we've got to do. So teams have a budget. And through our procurement process, we've integrated carbon uh, into uh, incentivising our suppliers to deliver on their carbon goals. But we definitely haven't got it all right. Simon says that the first thing they teach you at Harvard Business School is... But the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is climate change. And this message needs to be emphasised over and over again to make sure it filters throughout a business. But one point, if you take anything from what I want to say today, I really don't think people have got their head around the scale of the challenge, if I'm honest. The scale of the challenge is phenomenal. When we stopped to look at the net part of our net zero equation and we worked out how much tree planting, and it's not all about tree planting, but as a surrogate, 
how much tree planting would we need to do to achieve our goal? We'd need to plant, and our footprint's pretty small, we'd need to plant more trees than were planted in all of England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland put together last year. So the scale is absolutely huge. But it's okay to fall short as long as you aim high. Like a climber that falls off a cliff, you only fall as far as your last clip. You won't fall to the bottom. I just wanted to um, talk about the National Grid's journey on the last 10 years and talk a bit about reality, about how difficult all this is. This is Christine Glue, Sustainability Manager for National Grid, Gas Transmission and Metering. So just before the infrastructure carbon review, we had a very small team, and that was just two, two or three of us, where we started focusing on carbon. So we built a carbon interface tool, and we started measuring the carbon footprint of our schemes in design. Now at that time, nobody was interested. There was no focus on carbon, but we knew it was the right thing to do. We knew what was coming. After the review and the rush of projects and organisations trying to work out carbon footprints, Christine was able to point to 200 of National Grid schemes and demonstrate that every £1 million spent resulted in emissions of 252 tonnes of carbon. And then, oh, eyes opened and everybody's like, oh, there's actually something in this. Let's focus on setting targets. So we did set a 10% reduction year on year. We aim to get that 50% reduction in, in five years. At the end of the five years, we did only manage 33%, but that was good starting at zero. They got the designers involved, looking to build less and build smart. They also had to change specifications, which were a blocker initially, and by 2015, they could put carbon as a weighting into the project's bid documentation for the first time. So the winning bid said they could reduce carbon by 23% and that equated to £3 million. So they won the bid, that was great. And then I'd say a lesson learned is, at that point I thought, right, they've committed to do this, but can I guarantee they're going to deliver? Now we all know what goes in a tender will go in the contracts and will be monitored. But we also know, this is say 10 years ago, that environment and sustainability is on the bottom of the checklist. It's safety and cost. So I asked if I could get a team of people in with the, de the delivery team and look at reducing that carbon. So anyway, it took a year to get this agreement. We all sat down together and we said to the delivery team, right, how are you going to meet your 23% reduction? The delivery team had never seen the tender and had no plan for carbon reduction. So in some ways, Christine's team had to start again. But they did it, and at the end of the project, the target was hit. So I suppose my message is, you get in the tender, you get it in the contract, but you can't stop there. You can't turn away and, and focus on something else. You have to keep going back. So all our major projects, we have a sustainability review. And that starts with one of us going at the beginning and say, right, the commitments you made, um, how are you going to deliver them and forcing the contractor to give us that action plan for us to monitor. But National Grid did find, as they monitored this over the next five years, that for every 10% a company focuses on reducing carbon, it reduces costs by 6%. And on some assets, it was as high as 11%. And this further validates the business case put forward in the Infrastructure Carbon Review. A number of lessons have been learned in recent years, 
and six years on from its publication, PAS 2080 was due an update. This will be released late in 2022, and there are a number of changes. Expanding scope to include the whole built environment, including both buildings and infrastructure. Clarifying the role of everyone in the value chain when it comes to controlling and influencing emissions in a net zero context. Increasing the emphasis on a whole life carbon approach. This involves addressing the urgent need to decarbonize systems, networks and assets. Consideration of other demands such as climate resilience and emphasizing the importance of leadership and collaboration. And that was largely building on the lessons we learned in the last uh, six years since 2016, uh, first publication of PAS 2018, and how PAS has been applied, what are the shortcomings, what we could do best. This is Helene Pantelidou, a technical director for infrastructure for Arab. Together with Mott MacDonald, they formed the technical author team for the document, with support from Stantec, WSP and a number of other companies. It is still bringing consistency in the framing of uh, carbon management and highlighting both control and influence carbon and how important that is in all that we do. It is important, and Simon's already mentioned, which is fantastic, integrating decarbonisation into every step of our decision making. So that is an overarching theme across the new revision. It was always there, but is brought out a lot more, hopefully. Helene adds that nature-based solutions will have a part to play, perhaps replacing some of the functions of hard infrastructure, but definitely for carbon sequestration. But above all of this is the systems thinking that needs to be adopted across industry and the built environment. Recognising that each individual asset is, uh, is not an island, but it is a cog in the existing built environment system that we operate. So we do need to build and capitalise as much as possible on that interface between the different the individual assets and look for carbon reductions in places that we haven't dared go before or our systems are not applied. Maria Manidaki is a technical director at Mott MacDonald, also in the PAS revision team and also keen to depart from thinking of assets in isolation. Stop thinking of having net zero targets at the asset level. So, you know, we don't want people to think, I want to have a net zero road. Why is that? Because it might create unintended consequences of uh, trying to, to match the balance of the net and coming up with offsets and perhaps land use changes that are not adequate at the system level. Whenever targets are set, it is important to demonstrate an understanding of what the network or whatever system the asset is operating in looks like. We're not at this place yet in any country we've seen. We don't have national budgets that are legally binding at every region, but that's the intention. A lot of feedback has been submitted from the industry, showing that major asset owners have not set targets yet, and the industry is working on its own. That's okay, uh, but um, it's very, very important, and we're encouraging the update for the asset owner to be the key party to set those targets that are aligned as far as possible with a wider system decarbonisation. And Maria's final point is in line with Simon's carbon budget approach to decarbonisation. A percent reduction is not good enough anymore. 
we're operating in a net zero world, so we are, need to think about absolute reductions. And the importance in each of the delivery stages to have the right functional unit is pivotal. So when we're talking about at the program level, let's have absolute tons of CO2. Adam Crossley is the Director of Environment at Skanska, which was the first major contractor to become PAS 2080 verified. He comes at the decarbonisation challenge from a different angle to the previous guests, and he has a concern. Something that we will need to address when we move further into decarbonising our infrastructure. What I'm saying is going to be a bit of a provocation, so it might be for some. Uh, so I'm going to be saying some stark things, but uh, basically my thesis, my proposal, my point of today is that as an industry we have a deep decarbonisation blind spot. Skanska undertook an analysis to understand the relationship of carbon and cost on a major infrastructure project in Europe. As carbon value engineering was undertaken, costs initially decreased. And that's what most projects are doing. That's what we talked about mostly this morning. That's what mostly PAS 2080 kind of thinking is driving. That's what most of the industry is going at. At project level and also at a system level. And we know about that. And it makes good sense, doesn't it? Because it's uh, cost reduction, carbon reduction is a brilliant business case. And it's also a great political case for an infrastructure level. But as efforts continue, eventually the cost reduction begins to trend upwards. And that's the deep, deep carbonisation agenda. That's when you've done all the carbon efficiencies you can get. You've taken everything out of the efficiencies you've project. And let me be clear, we are nowhere near that at the moment. There is plenty to go ahead, to go out in our projects and right across the built environment and infrastructure uh, system to go out where we can reduce carbon and reduce cost. But the last bit, the deep decarbonisation, is the bit that actually costs more. As long as we need uh, heavy bits of structural materials to hold our projects together and hold them up and hold our bridges together, then we're talking about steel and we're talking about cement and we're talking about concrete. And as long as we need heavy bits of kit with wheels on to move those around and put them together, maybe even move them from an offsite uh, prefab, you know, modern methods of construction, you still need construction transport. Then we're talking about big, heavy diesel engines, um, which we don't have solutions for. So Adam argues that we must consider two phases of carbon reduction. Carbon value engineering, which reduces cost while reducing carbon, and then a turning point where you need to pivot into deep decarbonisation. Before we can even approach that point, first we have to get on the right track. If you think of carbon dioxide emissions as, as a bucket, and we've used most of what's in that bucket. The IPCC said last year, there are approximately 500 gigatons of CO2 left for fossil fuel companies and corporates to use. If we go over that target, we are unlikely, within certain probability levels, to reach a 1.5 degree temperature rise uh, and minimising it to that by 2050. This is Tim Young, the manager for Net Zero Finance at the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which is a partnership between CDP, the United Nations Global Compact, the World Resources Institute, and the Worldwide Fund for Nature. So what SBTI does is says, okay, how can we allocate those, those uh, additional carbon dioxide emissions between now and 2050, it's between the different sectors, between steel, cement, transportation, um, and food, uh, land and agriculture. We look at all those sectors and allocate 
carbon dioxide emissions on a pathway to net zero by 2050. Then they invite companies that have announced they'll be setting net zero targets, or near-term targets, which SBTI defines as 10-year ones. They're invited to come and talk with SBTI to validate those targets from a scientific perspective. By allocating then from their sectors, if they're a cement company, allocating a specified percentage of those emissions to their business, depending upon their importance, obviously, as turnover against worldwide turnover and uh, overall emissions from that sector at the current stage. And we then put them on a pathway to net zero using agreed budgets and processes. Currently, over 4,000 companies have committed to setting science-based targets with SBTI. A lot of those are near-term targets, but more and more now on net zero to 2050 targets amongst corporates. So that represents 15 trillion of market value and 22% of the global Fortune 500. Recent admissions uh, submissions have been uh, EasyJet. Last week, from the finance perspective, it was Direct Line and Pictay, the asset managers. So it's gaining momentum. Um, and it, lots and lots of uh, corporates are talking to us and financial institutions as well. And by setting criteria and validating it in companies' financial reports, SBTI is able to determine whether a company is on a 1.5 degrees C pathway. The next decade of action on carbon will perhaps be the most significant of all. We're the first generation to feel the effects of climate change and the last with a chance to mitigate them. Perhaps the best way to predict the next 10 years is to look back at the last 10. So here is David Riley, Head of Carbon Neutrality at Anglian Water, who also attended the first carbon crunch. Skills, capabilities, knowledge and awareness. Um, I'm reflecting on 2013, sitting in this exact same room and hearing the questions that were coming from the audience and how the questions today are radically different than what we were speaking about back then. And that translates through to Anglian Water because it's how we use the growing level of skills, capability, knowledge and awareness combined with the leadership that we need to hit those really challenging targets around net zero by 2030 and significant reductions in capital carbon and reductions in cost because that's really where the challenge fits it. There are so many different challenges that we face both within the water sector and beyond um, and it's how we stay the course in terms of delivering against our net zero ambition. The next 10 years builds on a far firmer foundation of awareness and skills than the last 10 years. And young engineers come into the industry are aware of and highly motivated to deal with these issues. Another person well-placed to look into the future of a decarbonising industry is Mark Enzer, a strategic advisor at Mont MacDonald and lead author of the Infrastructure Carbon Review back in 2013. I would maybe summarise it um, in terms of um, over the next 10 years, uh, we really need to see more connections. And I think that there are a number of different connections that we need to consider there. Uh, um, there's definitely kind of connections across the system that we've, we've talked about and connections across organisations to, to facilitate that uh, and the data connections, the information flow to uh, enable all of this lovely stuff. You know, the, the future is federated. Mark says it's important to remember that our system of systems, the built environment, is ultimately about getting the outcomes we want for both society and nature. I mean, to my mind, uh, kind of a key definition of value in this context is getting more outcomes per pound, uh, not just having cheaper construction. 
uh, and there's a big difference there. And getting more outcomes per pound for people in nature uh, is still a massive challenge. Climate change itself doesn't happen in silos. It's much more complicated than that and affects us in a systemic way. Now, with it being so complex and interconnected, there's no way that we can control it, but we can understand it better and we can intervene more effectively. And I think that's where the data point comes in because we really need that data in order to generate the understanding, in order to get the insights, in order to make the better decisions, in order to drive the better interventions. So in some ways we have a lot of the answer in our hands, uh, but talking about the next 10 years, we've got an immense amount of work to do to make it actually work, because at the moment it doesn't. At the moment we work in silos. Crucially, we need to get an information flow across organisation and sector boundaries. And, and that's kind of what I was starting with, saying that we need to have, have more connections, more connections uh, of people across systems and data and digital. And to me, that's a pretty meaty challenge for 10 years. This has been Carbon Crunch Part 1, the decarbonisation decade, where we heard from an industry looking to do its part to stop or perhaps even wind back that carbon clock. The last decade or so has seen targets agreed that will mitigate against the most catastrophic warming outcomes that we might have expected. Sadly, some of the severe weather events that have accompanied the rises we have seen have been more extreme than we predicted. This is why the topic of the second of this two-part special episode will become of increasing importance. So check out episode 193, part two, Carbon Crunch, Resilience in a Changing World. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own low-carbon model is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Mark McDonald, the organiser of this session, Mark Crouch, and to all of the speakers and delegates from the 2022 Carbon Crunch event. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.